0: Always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. And if you're looking to get more questions answered, I host a live stream answering all of your questions over on my Patreon page. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton. There are a lot of rewards and tiers available to all different budgets, something that can fit yours, I'm sure is there. There's, a, We're going to open up a Discord. It's going to be a lot of exciting things coming. So head on over there and check it out. Now today for the podcast, we have eight questions, all sorts of wonderful topics. Without further ado, let's jump into this first one. And this first question says, Katie, recently I admitted to my therapist that I was sexually abused as a child. I didn't talk about any details. And since then, I'm avoiding this topic with her. That's very common. She gave me some space and after some time, tried to bring it back into our session. Great job by the therapist. But the minute she started talking, I wanted to run out of her office. I couldn't answer any of her questions. And honestly, I don't like to discuss it at all. She asked me how I felt about it, but I didn't feel anything. It was more like emptiness. Is this normal? Do I need to talk it through to heal? How do I proceed? These are all great questions. And I first want you to know that your reaction to not wanting to talk about it, talking about a little, and then wishing that you hadn't, essentially, like wanting to run out of the office, never talk about it again, is incredibly normal. And for some obvious reasons, right? This is a very soft and touchy topic. This is something that uh, is very Causing, causes you to feel very vulnerable or maybe, you know, maybe we go into a shame spiral or maybe we have a trauma response, right? Everything that happened to you was terrible. It was abusive. It was traumatizing. And so a lot of emotions can come up when we first start to try to talk about this. So be gentle and compassionate with yourself as you navigate it. Now, the I love that she gave you space tried to bring it back in instead of trying to address the topic itself some useful tool is often to talk about the reaction so instead of talking about again we're not referencing the abuse honestly much at all we would say something like you know that topic i struggle with i find myself feeling x y or z i feel empty i want to run out of your office these are the things that come up for me and you can sometimes dive into that And just doing that will help you better manage because then we can come up with tools and resources for you to calm your system down. Because essentially what my hypothesis is, is that your nervous system is queuing up and going into fight, flight, freeze. And the reason it's doing that is because this is a trauma. And when we like tap into it, your nervous system's like, oh my God, something's happening. Oh my God. And it goes into panic and it wants to protect us. Now, it doesn't realize that it's not under threat at this moment because even talking about the abuse feels threatening. Do you know what I mean? And so I think that that's what's happening. And the way to combat that or to manage that is to have what we call resources or coping skills that can help us take that edge off, bring us out of that fight, flight, freeze response, and give give it, it's not really get us into a place of safety, more or less get us into a place that feels okay or neutral. And so those could be things like doing a full body shake, splashing cold water in our faces. It could be journaling out what we're feeling. It could be talking it out with a friend. Everyone's going to be different. There's going to be some distraction-based ones where we like pet an animal or go for a walk or something like that. And then there's going to be more process-based ones like like journaling, talking to a friend, talking to a therapist, things like that. But we're going to have to find some ways to get us back down into a, I'm okay, I can be here. I can deal with what comes up, even though it's uncomfortable. And I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm able to do that. And so that's really, you know, the work that I would encourage you to do with your therapist. And you can even say, hey, I asked this question to this therapist online, and she said this, what do you think about that? Because I don't want to step on her toes. She's doing a great job, but that might be a direction that I would try to take it. Now, to answer the other components of your question, feeling the emptiness, is that normal? Yes. The reason we usually feel emptiness, and I would love to hear in the comments if anybody has other thoughts about this, but from my experience with my patients, and even personally, when we feel this emptiness, or like a void of emotion, or even there just seems to be so many we can't identify, and we're like, oh, you know, emptiness comes out of us just shutting down, I think it's that overwhelm. We're like cutting it off so we feel nothing. And this probably helped us when we were growing up to feel emptiness or to feel nothing meant that we weren't overwhelmed. It meant that, you know, we didn't cry and exacerbate the situation or maybe what we thought caused, quote unquote, caused the abuse. We didn't do that anymore. You know, we tried to just uh, stuff it, shut it down feel nothing so that we can continue forward, hence the emptiness feeling. And so I think it's probably just a defense mechanism of yours and something you've utilized in the past to help you get through. And that's why this is coming up. Now, the last portion of your question, do I need to talk it through to heal? Talk therapy works for about 40% of people. So 60% of us aren't fully helped through just talk therapy. Does talk therapy benefit everyone? Yes, it's beneficial But it doesn't necessarily mean that we won't have any more PTSD symptoms. 60% of us are going to need something else like EMDR, somatic experiencing, schema therapy, maybe some DBT, maybe group therapy. We need some, they call it adjunctive treatment. So something on top of our basic talk therapy. So see what's available in your area. Since, you know, you feel kind of frozen, maybe some movement will be helpful like that somatic experiencing, or maybe... We want to try EMDR, that rapid eye movement from side to side. We call it bilateral stimulation, stimulating our left and then right brain. That gives our brain another chance to process what happened. Maybe that could be beneficial for you. Now, unfortunately, there's not a one size fits all. It's not like I can tell you, hey, you need four sessions of this type of treatment and you'll be better. No, that's just not how it works. But if the talking is too prohibitive right now, it's like too triggering, Maybe we try something else first. Maybe we get into EMDR and see if that kind of, again, takes that edge off so that we can do other work. Again, it's not one size fits all. So maybe EMDR is what you need and that's all. Or maybe we need talk therapy and EMDR. Maybe we need somatic experiencing on its own and that's it. Be open to working with, not against yourself. I think we too often fight against our natural response or urges with things and your body's telling you something does that mean that we should shut down and disconnect no but does that mean that maybe we should explore other options yes and it's okay to look into that and try to work with it try to find a way to kind of get to to get around this defense mechanism okay there was a comment on this says, as an add-on, what if you know that you had child se- uh, childhood sexual abuse because you remember bits and pieces, but for the most part, my childhood, 10 years and under feels like a complete and empty void. How can I talk through and process what I don't remember? This is a great question. And unfortunately, because of dissociation and trauma, we may not have those memories. We may, and we might be able to work with a the therapist and slowly kind of unrepress them or bring them back into our conscious memory and conscious mind but they just might not be there and that's why these other types of therapies can be incredibly beneficial because my my good friend Dr. Alex Altman who's a trauma specialist has told me that through research we know that if there isn't memory there or we aren't able to get it out of there right we aren't able to pull it out and recall it maybe at all what we need to work on is actually how the, the trauma is affecting us today. So how's it showing up for you? Are we hypervigilant? Do we shut down? Do we find ourselves tearful easily, feeling exhausted? Um, do we find ourselves clenching you know, our fists or sweating, having panic attacks? Is intimacy with anyone really difficult? You know, Pay attention and maybe take note of the ways it's showing up for you and the ways it's affecting you. And when you go to therapy, you ask about those specific things. Hey, this is what's happening. This is how I'm feeling. This is, you know, the way things are going. Essentially, can you help me with those things? And that's how you proceed. Okay. Another question on top that says, I've just done this also. And I feel like I'm describing my thoughts and memories like it happened to someone else. Oh, that disconnection. We'll talk about that. Even though I know it's myself. I feel emotionally voided when I think about it, but when I'm discussing it to my therapist, I find myself extremely emotional. Why is this? Great question. Now that disconnection or feeling like you're talking about someone else is almost, it's kind of like externalization, which is a tool that we can use in therapy to help us better manage a symptom. Meaning that instead of calling something our depression, or part of us, right? The depression that I have, or I'm depressed. We try to encourage people to say, you know, and George over there, my depression. So we can give it a name. We can put it out of ourselves and we can look at it differently. And so you're kind of doing your own version of this where you're like, this happened to someone else, because when I think it happened to someone else, I can talk about it more easily. You're just using it as a tool and kudos to you. 10 out of 10. However, if we do that without recognizing or maybe even acknowledging that it happened to us. There will come points in your therapy where you feel kind of stuck and like you can't push through. And so I would let your therapist know that this is happening, that you feel this kind of externalization or disconnection from yourself when you talk about these difficult topics and situations. Let them know that's happening. We might want to do some grounding techniques, or it might be more around working up to through journaling and talking with your therapist, like saying or admitting to yourself that these things happen to you. I know that kind of maybe for some people they are like, well, of course you have to admit that. It's really hard. It's hard to use real words around what took place. It's hard sometimes for my patients to say, I was raped. I was abused. Those phrases can be really hard. And using those terms, ooh, I'm sure some of you just like pulled your earbuds out and you're like, fuck this shit. I don't want to listen. Right it can be really hard to hear those words. And so that might be part of your work is coming to terms with that terminology, recognizing what comes up for you, even as I say it, and then using our coping skills to help us soothe, be reminded that we're okay. It's not happening right now. And just pay attention to the conversation that you're having with yourself about it. Like when I say those words, you're like, well, that didn't happen to me. Write that down. I don't you know, the way I would write it in a journal, I often feel like it didn't really happen to me. It's hard for me to admit that what happened didn't happen to someone else. And in fact, it was my life. I think that's helped me go for, keep going forward. Right? And you can dig into that. Now, the reason that when you're with your therapist, you find yourself extremely emotional, my guess would be that you finally have a neutral or safe place. So you're like, Bleh like verbal diarrhea, like everything is coming out because you've been stuffing it down for so long because no place ever felt safe enough to do that. And so it's a great a great resource. And if you feel okay doing it, I would encourage you to just let yourself cry in therapy. Get, you know, ugly cry, get super emotional. I know it can feel like a lot in the moment. We can judge ourselves. But to me, even in my own personal therapy, when that happens, it's because I needed it. And I can Swear and honestly tell you through my own personal research and personal therapy that it does stop. I know that sounds crazy. I'm a crier. You all know that, but I'll go into therapy, ball my eyes out, snotty, go through like a hundred tissues for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and then all of a sudden I'll barely tear up, and then I don't. And then honestly, after for me because I kind of come and go in therapy frequently after I stop crying, there's maybe like two or three sessions more. And then we take a break because usually that means that I've like worked through what it was. I'm not feeling so emotionally charged about it. And I kind of like took the edge off. So notice what it's like for you. That's just my experience, but I'm just sharing that in case that's helpful. Okay. Now, another person says, as an add-on, um, I've had something like flashbacks, um, of something like sexual assault that come back every time I try to talk about my childhood in therapy, or maybe it's not sexual assault, maybe it's SA is sexual abuse. It feels so hard to think about, let alone talk. I doubt if it. it um, I doubt if it truly happened, and also fear that I'm being a liar when I'm talking about it. I'm so scared to bring it up. It feels like I'm overreacting or making things up, but at the same time, the memories are very or are really weighing on me. Any advice? Do I need to tell my therapist the specifics to move past? It's not necessarily, it's not It's not that we have to tell them all the specifics. It's best if we can. And the reason why is because we're giving our brain another opportunity to process that. And by talking it out in as much detail as we can, we're giving that opportunity to ourselves. But that can take time. Don't feel like you have to go zero to 100. It could start with us just saying, telling them what you're telling me. I find myself struggling and I doubt. I think I might be a liar, but like the memories are really weighing on me. This is really getting overwhelming. You know, you can be honest about what's coming up for you without even giving any detail about the situation. And that in and of itself could be healing to have someone see you, look you in the eye and tell you that they hear you and they understand, and they're going to be there with you as we work through it, right? All of that can be incredibly healing. And so, even just starting there, I think, is a great first or second or third step in therapy. Now, um, the the feeling that you are a liar or that someone's not going to believe you, or maybe, you know, it wasn't really that bad, you're overreacting, those are all trauma thoughts. They're born out of the shame, blame, guilt, and embarrassment that we can feel when we are traumatized. And I know it's hard for us to to understand that that's where it's coming from, but you know how... Therapists are like wired to see patterns. This is a pattern that I see everywhere when it comes to trauma, is this thought that I'm making it into a bigger deal than it really was. This urge to minimize or invalidate. And the reason that we do that is because that helps us continue on when it's happening, helps us survive. It's great. It's a great survival resource, but it ends up biting us in the ass later, right? So it's not serving us anymore. We need to get rid of it. It also can happen because we were told by the abuser or someone else in our lives that we were making it into a big deal, that that's not really what happened. You're remembering it wrong. We could have been gaslit. So with abuse comes all these other layers. Again, be kind with yourself as you try to figure it out. We try to dig in and uncover layer after layer and figure out what's really going on. No need to go fast. no need to have all the answers. Bring up anything you're concerned about, any questions you have, any worries with your therapist. Tell your therapist, I'm afraid that i I'm because I don't remember everything and it's like splotchy that I'm a liar or that I'm making it into more than it was. Maybe it wasn't as bad as I remember. I don't know. I have all these swirling worry thoughts, and I hate it, you know, but then these memories are like weighing on me. you will be like, I feel like I'm trapped it's okay to just talk like that. We don't have to have the answers. We don't have to know why we're feeling the way that we're feeling. That's why our therapist is there is to help us. So I encourage you to let your therapist know what you told me and let them help you work through it. So I think at some point the specifics will help you move past it, but it's not necessary right now. Take your time. Okay. Another person said, I've recently opened up about an event that I think was sexual abuse. I don't have a full memory of the event, so I'm not totally sure if it was complete sexual abuse or just plain physical abuse, but he put his knee down my middle. My therapist thinks it may be the second because when I'm able to talk about it, my mind and body disconnect. So it's as if I'm calm and yet still my body internally is screaming. I went along with my therapist's thought process because I just felt so invalidated. Now, I feel even more shame as I still feel like it was more than a need of the gut, but I don't have the full memory. What should I do? Let your therapist know you feel this way because the fact that it feels invalidating and your body internally is screaming. I mean, I have questions. Like, if I was your therapist, I want to know when you say your body is screaming, where? What is it screaming about? If you could give your body a voice, what would it say? If you could write a letter from your body to your mind, what would you tell what would you tell your mind? Let's take some time, maybe that's part of the homework, because something's happening and I want to know what. And the fact that you felt invalidated means your therapist was off base. That gut reaction, that ooh, that didn't feel good tells us something. It's a red flag. We're like, "Hey, something just happened that I don't like." Ugh. How do I how do I figure out what that is, right? We have to dig into it. We have to be curious, not judgmental. We don't need to jump to any conclusions. We don't need to judge ourselves. We just need to tap in. So, I would, if you feel okay, maybe we have to practice saying it beforehand, but tell your therapist that you felt invalidated. I don't believe that they meant for that to happen. So, it's going to be important. And they'll probably have the same thoughts I have where they're like, oh my God, I must have been off base. It must be more than that. Or me saying that it, the, it was physical abuse. Not sexual abuse. That was me jumping to conclusion because we don't know enough to even make that judgment right now. You said you don't have full memory. We're not sure. We know a couple things that happened. Instead of trying to figure out which box it falls into, what if we just called it what it was? It was abuse. What kind we're still sorting, but it definitely, definitely was abuse. I hope that's helpful. I know it's hard. I'm so sorry you felt invalidated, but let your therapist know because I don't think it was intentional. And if we don't tell them, then they can't do better for us, right? Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hey, Katie, I hope you're all um, you're all well. I am. Says I found myself becoming angry her with my therapist the last few sessions. She didn't even do anything. This is interesting. We'll talk about this. I keep thinking back to the sessions, wondering what she had said. But it wasn't a particular thing that she said. She was just annoying me. I was irritated. I don't like that I felt this way at all. Interesting. I know you're going to say that I should just bring it up with her. You should. But even the thought of doing that makes me extremely uncomfortable. The thought of admitting that I felt that way for no and for no reason. Just to be clear, she is great. And I have no problems with her. She's slowly breaking through walls I never even knew would be possible. I know she keeps saying that I can just express my anger there, but the whole thing is just stressing me out. I don't like that feeling. I don't want to mention it and make her feel uncomfortable either, especially when I can't even figure out why it's happening. Please help. I love this question so much. When it came through, I was like, here we go. Okay. So there's so much in this that is just like little flags to me. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, that makes sense. Okay. 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 So The reason that you're irritated and angry is because she's been telling you to express your anger there and you don't really know how to do it and you don't know what to do with the anger you have, so you've put it on her. Essentially what happens in therapy are the issues that we have in our real life show up there in a bizarre or maybe intense way. You don't like anger. You struggle to express it. She keeps pushing you to do it. And so you're expressing it. I think it's helpful to let her know. Maybe you'd feel more comfortable to express what's happening to her this way. By saying, you know, you've been telling me to get angry and to express my anger in therapy. And I, it's so hard and I don't even know how to do it. But lately, I think I'm doing it because I've just been angry with you for no reason. And I've just been irritated. And like everything you say makes me, ah. And I think it's me expressing anger. And I don't know why it's, and then you just go into it. I don't know why it's you because there's nothing that you've done. It's almost like I don't feel, and this is my hypothesis. It's almost like I don't feel safe to just express anger at other people. I only feel safe doing it with you. And that's weird. Now, I'll give you a little inside scoop. I think the reason that you're expressing it to her is because she is that safe person. And the reason that it's hard for you to express it in other ways is because nobody else in your life is possibly okay enough to do that with. And you're worried about what the consequences of your anger could be. this is incredibly common, especially if we have any abuse growing up. um, If there was an addict in our home, if, um, yeah, those are the main two. But even if our parents were like, really uncomfortable with emotions and tried to like shut us down because intense emotions made them uncomfortable so they'd be like that's enough of that um all of that can cause us to not feel safe and okay enough to express any discontent because what what the repercussions could have been too much right the cost was too high so instead we ugh, we stuff it down deep and then we get in therapy and our therapist is like express it here and you're like what sit come again how I don't do that anger don't know her don't like her don't want to get to know her she feels very out of control it could even help you to help you to kind of journal about what you think about anger what judgments do you have around it because i know personally i'm not that comfortable with it and i had a shitload of therapy homework over the years to work with it and to express it and i've come to find out for me my belief is that anger is damaging and out of control and i like control (sighs) And so, if I'm angry, that means that, um, that things aren't going to work out the way that I want. That things have gone like off the rails, and we there's no telling what could happen. And I just don't like that. It feels just scary. Eee. So, what's it like to you? You know, and how do you feel it in your body? I feel it in my throat. I like all my emotions are intense are in my throat. I like tighten, ugh, and then I swallow. <laughs> real deep and that's how I stuff it and so to express it is like I don't know how to do that right we have to learn so try different things letting her know what's coming up for you and anger can be expressed through physical movements like kicking a ball or we can scream into a pillow can be expressed through writing that was the most helpful for me was writing and then screaming angry songs in my car but you work on it with you and see what what speaks to you okay There was a, oh, and they had an update said, I brought it up in the next session. I'm so proud of you. She validated my feelings like I knew she would. She's asked me to let her know the next time this happens during the session. That way we can work on it together in the moment so that it can be a healing and learning experience. Now, I love that update. Um, I do think it's important to bring up a couple of things I mentioned just to see, or at least be curious about them. But the great thing about therapy and the reason that this is usually the first place that all of our hurtful, harmful, scary behaviors come out is that it's that it's finally a place where we can have that experience happen. We can have that reaction. We can uh, express ourselves in a way we probably never could before. And instead of being met with what we're assuming or maybe have received in the past, which is like minimization and validation, telling you to shut up, saying that you're making it up, maybe getting abused because of that, Instead of that happening, we get this healing therapeutic process where the therapist says, that seems like a lot of anger. And I'm curious where that's coming from. And where do you feel it in your body? And would it help you? You know, do you want me to fight back? I've had patients want me to argue back with them a little bit. And I'll do that a little bit. But it's allowing for the anger to exist. Because anger is okay. It's healthy. Disagreements are okay. People fight. Does it mean that the fights have to turn dangerous emotionally or physically? Absolutely not. We can disagree. We can have discourse with each other without it turning nasty. We can have conversations like, I don't really like that you said that or did that. And the other person can say, well, I think it's fine because of this. And we can say, I don't agree with that. You know, We can have that kind of discourse without name calling, without shouting someone down and without devolving into any kind of emotional or physical abuse. And therapy can be a great place to learn that because, frankly, we probably never got to learn it as a child. Okay. <clears throat> Let's move on to question number three. This question says Hi, Katie. I recently realized that I have sexual feelings about my therapist. Interesting. I've read about transference. The thing is, we're both women. Does this mean that I'm not straight? Addressing this to her feels extremely uncomfortable, so I would appreciate some hints on what this may reveal about me. Thanks for everything. Okay, now, what we call this is erotic transference. Now, I know that's like maybe a really uncomfortable word, but it's essentially transference. And it doesn't really matter the gender of your therapist. It can for some people, but most of my patients, it doesn't. I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of times it doesn't. And the reason that this usually happens is because we don't really know any other way that love can look. Now, I'm going to throw out some just examples. Does this mean your life has to fit this? No. But for example, I've had a patient in the past. This was, I think, at the first eating disorder treatment center I worked at. And I wasn't even her primary therapist. I was just like one of her group therapists. But she had erotic transference about her therapist. And we had talked about it in our supervision group, which was really helpful for me to learn early on looking back. Anyways, it came down to the fact that no one in her life had ever given her any kind of attention or affection other than the person who sexually abused her and told her that that's what love was. So in essence, her experience of love was always sexual so when she thought her therapist was there for her and cared for her and she started to have some of these like friendshipy love feelings it came out as er erotic feelings like sexual feelings because that's the only thing she knows and that's some version of that usually happens or it can be the fact that we don't really know what to do with the feelings that we have for a therapist And it comes out as that and i actually have an entire video if you just go onto youtube and look up erotic transference katie morton it'll be there Um, and you can learn all about it it's it's very interesting there's nothing to be ashamed of it usually has something to do with the fact that we finally have a place where someone's hearing us caring for us and showing up consistently and we don't really know what to do with that other than to assume that it's love or that it has to be sexual That's it. I know that doesn't make it less uncomfortable or less embarrassing or whatever, but I just want you to know that as a therapist, we're kind of used to it. Attachment stuff, erotics, it happens all the time. And frankly, it's helpful for us to know because that's information about what's coming up for you. It actually has nothing to do with me or your therapist. I know that sounds weird but it has nothing to do with them. It's more about you and your relationships and your relationship with yourself and how we're processing what we're going through. So be patient. If you're not comfortable talking about it right away, maybe we journal about it a little bit. Like, what is it about that relationship that we think is causing this? Does this necessarily mean that you're not straight? No, I don't believe so. I mean, I'm sure in some cases it could, but I, in this same amount of cases, it wouldn't. It really doesn't have anything to do with a sexual relationship, Okay. It's more about that connection, attachment, feeling like someone's there listening, showing up for us. That's what's triggering this. Okay. I hope that that helps. Now there's another comment to say as an add on, why is it erotic transference that I'm experiencing? I also have sexual feelings toward my same sex therapist were both females. If I saw her as a mother figure to me, it'd make more sense to experience transference as I'm in therapy for childhood neglect and was abused by my mother. Interesting. I'm curious what kind of abuse, but I can't wrap my head around why I'm feeling this erotic transference. I am a closeted bisexual. That, maybe that could be the reason. By closeted, I don't mean that I'm hiding my sexuality. I just don't see how it's anyone's business. I'm married to a man. He knows about my sexuality and I don't regret that. I, however, never got to be in a relationship with a woman before meeting him. Could my feelings towards my therapist be because of this? It could be Again, kind of going back to what I said at the other question, therapy is like a safe place to kind of explore things that we maybe never got a chance to explore or things that we never got a chance to process. Do you know what I mean? Like expressing anger, right? It's finally an opportunity to do that. And we can have actually a healthy and healing experience or in your case, your your sexuality. It could be that. Or it could be what I talked about before. the The truth is that I, you know, everyone's situation is going to be different. I just encourage you, watch my video on erotic transference if you need more information. Consider what it would look like and feel like for you. Consider how this shows up for you. You know, be curious about your experience, not judgmental, and see what comes up because any of these answers are fine. Again, there's no judgment. Um, I, I, But I also wonder about the abuse from your mother and the childhood neglect. And now you have a woman who's finally showing you love and and support and, you know, consistency. And that could be triggering some of this, but get curious about it and let me know what you find out let's move on to question number four. This question says, hi, Katie, I was wondering if therapists do work for their clients in between sessions. Yes, we do. I always assume that they do. And that that was part of why the fee was so high, because they need to take some time to look things up between sessions, as well as doing things like reading books that might have uh, might be relevant to their current clients. Yep marketing pages for them to read, etc. or marking pages for them to read. I have gone to a few different therapists in the past few years, and some gave me the impression that they did everything in session. For example, there was one that I saw a few times while I had insurance, and I felt connected with her. But once I lost my insurance, I stopped seeing her. I booked another appointment with her because I was having a bit of a crisis, and I felt like I needed help. But I also emailed her ahead of time, asking her if she had any references for sliding scale therapists. When I got to the session with her, she brought that up and then spent a couple of minutes of the session writing out the names and contact information on sticky notes, which she gave to me. Is that normal? Yes, but we'll talk about that. I also respect her time, so I thought maybe that this is normal, but it did make me wonder because I have always assumed that therapists put aside a bit of time each week to review their client situation, etc. Maybe that's different because I wasn't seeing her regularly, but some of the therapists I've seen have made me wonder if that's normal or not. Thanks. Okay, great question. Now, first thing is most therapists do do work for their clients in between sessions. Um, I always did. And it just depends on the client, depends on what's happening, depends on the issue. There are some things that I know more about, right? I specialize in eating disorders and self-injury work. I know that inside and out. Does that mean that I don't really do any work in between? No, but it means that I it's, it's faster work for me because it's less learning on my part. It's more resource-searching, maybe answer gathering or things like that. Um, So there's that. Now I do, you know, read a lot of books. We have to do continuing education units and I usually pick them based on like what my patients are struggling with at the moment. I do all of that. Um, I will find questionnaires or worksheets. I'll put those things together, print those out, whatever for my clients. Now, I believe that all good therapists do that. Does that mean that everybody does? No, I can't I don't know what other people do, but all of the good therapists that I've ever seen, that I've ever worked with, um, they do that. And the hours and time you spend, it just depends. It depends on where we're at in our, you know, what we're working on. Like I said, all those factors. Now with your therapist, so you, you were having a crisis, you need a little bit of help. So you booked another appointment with her and you hadn't seen her for a while. And then you emailed her. Now that's different. I know you're like, why would that be different? Now, clearly she, it sounds like she already had people that she could write down for you. She'd already thought about it or knew it or looked it up or whatever. So she technically may have already done that work, but she didn't write it down until she was in session. And I probably would have done the same only because... I don't allow, I mean, I allow people to email me so that I can be prepared. That's totally fine. But I'm not going to reply to them via email. And I will bring it up in session usually, which is kind of what she did. She was like, here's what we're going to do. Okay. And then she wrote it down. Could she have done it ahead of time? Sure. But that's not really the work in between sessions that I would necessarily, I mean, I guess we do look up referrals and like put that stuff together, but I wouldn't think of that as like a big deal. The things that are a big deal to me Is if you feel like your therapist never picks up where you left off in your last session, like at all, and every time you come to session, they're like, "So, what would you like to work on?" You're like, "I thought we were working on the thing we talked about. What aren't we working on?" You know, I don't like that. I think that's kind of lazy therapist work. Also, if a therapist does not understand the issue that you're dealing with and doesn't consult with other clinicians about it, do research, get books, or refer you out, I think that's also lazy therapist work. When you just like chitty chat. And like, and the third kind of, if you just feel like you're not really making any progress and you're just talking like friends, that's lazy therapisting too. I know, I know it's, it's hard to admit sometimes, but not everybody's good at their jobs and not, and a lot of therapists are burnt out. I'm not saying that we're perfect, you know, some of us could be great, but now we're like, huh, we've just haven't been taking care of ourselves. We've been seeing too many patients and we can't, you know, we don't have any time for, the the breath in that we need. So anyways, I hope that answers your question. I I almost always. And I I feel like any any outpatient therapist out there if you want to weigh in on this, I'd love to hear it. But I feel like my patients are always kind of in my head at some in some way. And then when I'm talking to other clinicians if I'm consulting or I used to be part of this like journal club in Santa Monica and we would talk about new research and difficult patients, all that stuff. I feel like my patients are always there in my head. And when I'm doing things like that, and I'm just around other people, I'm like, oh, that could be helpful for so-and-so. And And I like make a mental note or jot it down in my notes. Um, Yeah. So I feel like we're always kind of carrying them with us. And maybe that means I don't have as healthy boundaries as I thought, but I'm pretty boundaried with my patients. So anyway, those are my thoughts. I hope that's helpful. Moving on to question number five, this question says, Katie, I have a question about coping skills. I have a list of coping skills that can work if I can physically make myself do them. But recently, recently I've been struggling to do them. My therapist never told me what to do when you can't make yourself do them. It's like that dark part of me wants to stay around. and keeps me from doing what I need to do. My question is, what do you do when you cannot make yourself use your coping skills? We need different ones. Now, there are a bunch of coping skills we can do mentally, because you're saying physically. So I would challenge you to come up with some different ones, because some are working for you some are not. Now, the mental ones could be in our minds. We close our eyes. Everybody close your eyes. Take a breath with me. Let's think of something that we're grateful for. I'm grateful for each and every one of you listening, sharing, talking, commenting. I'm grateful. It allows me to do a really cool job I didn't think was possible. I'm grateful that I have clean drinking water. I'm grateful, right? So that's a mental, I can just mentally do a checklist. I can go through some things. I can also mentally try to breathe. I can check in with myself. How am I feeling today? I can even, this is kind of physical, but very minimal in movement, can progressively relax, like clench and relax muscles in my body, starting from, you know, the top going down to the bottom or starting from the feet going up to the top. I can do that. Um, There are all sorts of things. Now, I want you to consider what your coping skills are. And I want you to come up with ones that are that are simpler. Honestly, just things that you can do without, with minimal effort. Like I said, there's there's some mental ones that we can do. Think about those. What are some things you could do in, with regard to, maybe something I said, you know, helped you remember something or got you thinking and like, maybe that could work. Maybe they're a little bit more effort, like standing up and shaking out. Maybe we can get on our phone. We can text a friend or FaceTime someone. We can try that. There are a lot of different ways that we can do stuff without having like a ton of physical effort. So I would encourage you to rework your coping skills. And I would put these coping skills, like maybe five to 10 of them in this bucket of, I don't want to, so I'm going to do this. Because we all get into that space. I would also encourage you to recognize, if possible, do some like historical research on yourself and notice as you slid into this, like I can't even do them. Because there's usually steps leading up to this kind of response. And I'm curious what the trigger was or how slowly or quickly we fell into it. And if we're able to kind of identify maybe some key points where like, oh, in that day, all of a sudden, I just felt way worse, or over that week, I just found myself sliding into a deep depression. Um, If we can see those points, then it was at that point before we slid in where we should have done other coping skills, and we probably should have beefed them up. Maybe we should have called our therapist and booked an extra session if we can, or something like that, right? So let's do some of that historical research to learn more about it, and in the meantime, try some of these like what I'd call low maintenance coping skills and see if that helps okay hang in there we need coping skills of all ranges of energies or activities and so it just sounds like we need to have some very low effort ones for you right now okay let's move on to question number six this question says hey Katie so I'm going to try and do my best to keep this short because I know you have lots of of other more important questions to answer now I left this in there because we're going to get back to that okay My mom is a narcissist. See what I mean? And last year, I went no contact with her for almost six months at my therapist's suggestion. Honestly, it was one of the most stress-free times I've ever, ever had in my life. We'll get into that too. The reason I started talking to her again is because my older sister's oldest son was getting married. She, my sister, was really pushing me to talk to my mom so she wouldn't have to deal with it during her son's wedding weekend. I get that because her middle son died in 2021 and she now can't stand the idea of our family not being close. Well, that's her decision. She's still asking me if my mom and I are good. And the truth is I'm not. I've kept some distance between me and my mom, but I've had to help take care of her lately because she's had surgery. Why are you the one doing this? Since the surgery three weeks ago, I've had an increase in a lot of my trauma symptoms, of course. How do I keep my family happy while at the same time keeping my mental health stable? Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Need more chapstick. Okay, so first things first, you put yourself down before you even asked a question. And as a therapist, I feel like I said, highlight that and say that you can take up space. You can take up my time. You have every right to ask a question, every right for me to answer it, just like anybody else. Okay? Okay. I know you've sustained a lot of narcissistic abuse and I know you probably never heard that, which is why I'm telling you because I think, and then you can rewind this back and listen to it when you need just a little like affirmation. I can take up space. I have every right to get my question answered. I have every right to ask my question. Okay. Now the fact that you're admitting that those six months where you didn't talk to your mom was the most stress, one of the like most stress-free times of your life, that's really important. And I want you to remember that because based on this, I believe that you should go back to that. Now, I don't, you know me, I usually don't like, I recommend X, Y, or Z, right? I want you to like, think about it, be curious about it. You've already done that. We actually already had a trial run and it was successful, but because of the narcissistic abuse that you sustained, you have a lot of, I would assume, struggles with self-worth and value, and you're probably a people pleaser, when we have someone in our life that's a narcissist, that means that they, especially our mom, they had no empathy for us. We often probably didn't really feel loved, probably a lot of emotional neglect, if not you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, things like that. But emotional abuse was probably just common, lashing out in nasty emails, texts or calls or in person, putting us down, um, undermining us, telling us horrible things, Right there's a lot to unpack there and not having her drain you of your life force obviously helped you feel better now i again your sister can want all the things that she can want but that's that's on her to go to therapy and unpack and deal with i know it it sucks when we have a parent like that but the grieving process need like your sister will have to grieve that your family's not perfect spoilers it never has been also no one's is okay sometimes people can have a difficult time like she lost her son which is horrible and i'm so sorry for her loss but i have a feeling that was like triggering for her and so she's going back to this like rose colored glass idea of like what the family could look like or feel like when it never did if your mom's a narcissist, there's no way your childhood was pretty. Your sister probably is just like, lola can't handle it right now because she's already stricken with grief from her son passing away, which I get, but that's her. And this is where, again, if we, have, if we have a narcissistic parent, boundaries, hard to come by. You probably were never allowed to have them. And so it's hard for you to hold them right now. And that's what my encouragement for you, that's what I'm going to encourage you to do. When your sister says things like, I just can't stand the idea of our family not being close, say, I am close with you. I'm close with, you know, dad or whoever else. I just can't be close with our mom because she's so abusive. Those are the terms I would use because that's the truth. And the fact that you brought her back into your life is already affecting you and you're having a ton of trauma symptoms come back. So it's really not good for you. It's actually better for you to go no contact. And if we hear by some miracle of miracles that your mom gets into therapy, For herself and starts like working on things, at that point we can reassess. You know, if people want to change, I I always will believe that they can, but they have to want to. And so I know you want to keep your family happy, but I am encouraging you to take up space and put yourself first. It's okay for you to be happy. You can still be around your family. And if we can figure out, because you're in therapy, I believe fully, you can figure out a way to show up to an event where your mom is at be cordial hi mom and move on now if she wants to you know approach you at that event and try to make a scene that's on her i would just like you know we just we don't engage it's almost like we're going no contact even though there's contact i know it feels weird but you can talk with your therapist and there's a ton of ways to kind of mitigate that you know Like at the wedding, I would just tell your sister, I know it already happened, but I would have just said like, I just want to sit at a different table. And that would be it. That'd be the only request. And then you'll manage it. You know, your sister only has to deal with your mom because she has to deal with your mom. I wouldn't make any issue. You're not the problem. Again, I know your mom is a gaslighter because she's a narcissist. She probably told you you're the problem. You're not the problem. And no one should force us to continue to give in to someone who's abusing us. That's... I I just People don't realize what that does, but it's like saying, I know this person really hurt you, but because I'm uncomfortable with boundaries, I need you to keep going back to this abusive person. What? Right? That's essentially what your sister's asking. If you need some reframing, just consider that. So hold the line. You are not responsible for taking care of her since she's had surgery. She's got to have somebody else in her life, even though I know she's a narcissist, so she probably doesn't. But that's on her. That's not on you. I would... Let your sister know this has made my mental health incredibly bad and my trauma symptoms are back. I just can't. I physically and mentally can't. I love you. I will still continue to be close to you. I hope you can respect my boundary with my mom. I just can't. I know it's hard. And I know it's like going against the way you were trained as a kid, unfortunately, because of the abuse. But hang in there, talk to your therapist about it. And I would really encourage you to go back to that no contact, okay? There was a comment on this as as an add on. I know that talking to my mom and being around her is harmful for me mentally, but I have to be with her at least once a week to help her or my dad. They are physically unable to get to their medical appointments or even to go for a walk without one of their children. And I don't feel like it's right for my brother and sister to have to do it all themselves. I'm not sure they feel any better about it either. How do I protect my own mental health when I have no choice about talking to my mom? I have the same. Um, oh yeah. Okay. So that's the end of that one. There's another add on after this. So, okay. I know this might not be possible, but I know that it exists. So I have to mention it when it comes to getting people to medical appointments, it's covered. If they have Medicare of any kind, um, in the state of California, I know that, that that's like my experience, you guys, there are a ton of resources you can sign up for that are covered. Or at very low cost. I think one of my patients paid like ten dollars a month or something for transportation to and from. Sometimes they would send a taxi. I know they still exist. Can you imagine? Maybe it's a Lyft or Uber now. I don't know. But sometimes they would send a taxi, and other times, and most of the time, like ninety percent of the time, it was this little shuttle bus van that would pick up. I had tons of patients when I worked in the hospital that took this little shuttle bus van to and from the hospital for their groups and for their appointments with me. And then they would go off to get their dialysis or to get whatever other appointments with their psychiatrist. It would pick them up from their home, or some of them were in like a residential facility of sorts. They would pick them up from there and take them. It was set up through Medicare. So it might behoove you. As Again, I know this might not be possible, but I would be, I would encourage you to check and call, ask them what insurance they have and see if you can set that up. Because if your brother and sister aren't enjoying it either, they might be so incredibly grateful. And if there is a cost to it, let's say it's 50 bucks a month, you can split that cost. And I'm not going to lie. I would throw, if I had money to throw it, I'd throw a little bit of money at that to make that go away. So that would be, I encourage you to look into that. Okay. Not everybody knows that those resources exist, but they do. Um, And I know some people, your mom might not like it or whatever, but I would just, you know, act like, why not take advantage of this? It's so much easier for you. You know, they get you there early, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Now, when it comes to this, I my best advice is to prepare ahead and then debrief after. So we're going to have to beef up our self-care ahead of time. We're going to have to have some boundaries around the conversation that she may or may not respect or whatever, but or, you know, maybe we have some, let's just ask her about herself. Narcissists love to talk about themselves. So, you know, some of those favorite stories they'd love to tell over and over again, like, do you know that when I was a teenager, so many boys liked me, well, you know, they always have these stories about how amazing, beautiful, thin, uh, popular, whatever they were, or their martyr stories, that time that this person tried to hurt me, or do you know how abusive my other boyfriend was? You know, they always have those stories. So I would just let them let her retell those things because at least then we can prepare and we know what's coming. That would be kind of my goal because otherwise they're going to, she could make comments about you and it could be abusive. And I don't want you having to go into that. I don't even like you having to do this at all. So if we can get you out of it, I would, but um, that's what I would do is have those topics at the ready and just prepare ahead, you know, think about it, write them down, mention, bring them up, tell me that story of blah, 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 you know, and have quite a few. I'm sure there's a few, popped into your head that would be what I would do Um, and for them to go on a walk I feel like I mean I honestly feel like the appointments is where I would stop that would be the all that I could do if you feel okay doing that let's pull out from that walk thing because if they need that they need a higher level of care and to put yourself in an abusive situation they can walk around their house you know? Um, I know people might be like, Katie, you're being really harsh. You're not taking into consideration cultural norms. That's I'm talking generally because this isn't my patient and I don't know all the details. I'm talking about their mental health and protecting that. Because I know people got mad about something a while ago and I'm like, listen, my job is to protect my patients and to protect their mental health. And if there was a cultural issue, I would hope that it would be written in or you can assess for yourself. But at the end of the day, I'm always going to protect my patients and I'm always going to protect their mental health. And so that's really my advice, see if we can get them the rides to and from their appointments, at least cut back the amount of time you spend with them, have certain topics that you bring up so that stay on course with what you're expecting and prep ahead, like double down on some coping skills and self-care, and then make sure you have some debriefing happening, whether that means that we move like our therapy appointment. So it's like the day after we have to see them or meaning we call a friend or so, or a sibling to vent about it could be helpful. That's one of the benefits of siblings is that they know it too. So we can be like, oh my God, she was doing this or he was doing that and They're like, oh, they're the worst. Right. And so you can kind of vent about it and that can help you feel less alone and also heard and understood. Now there was a final add on to this as I had the same question, but a different situation. I have never gone no contact with my mom except for a few weeks at a time. And I'm still in college and I really struggle with returning home for breaks. So I'm sure I think my parents try, but neither of them seems to understand what's best for me or important in my life. It's also just really triggering being close in the same building with my mom, especially when she spouts off something she's learned about parenting or talks about foster kids. She's part of a support group for foster parents and trauma and abuse. I know it would be unwise to let myself get dragged into a conversation about these things at this point in my journey through therapy, but it's really hard to just passively listen to her talk about these things. My trauma symptoms also increase around going there, but I feel that I must, mostly for my dad and my younger sister's sake, and also to keep a relationship going with my mom in case it could ever be repaired in the future. I mean, we can always hope that things can get better, but again, we're only half of that relationship. And if they aren't working on themselves, I mean, not to harp and harp on therapy, but that's a huge move, on their part to say like hey this i'm not doing things the way that i like or hey i want to improve this or that that's a i know it might not be easy for people but that's a great step in the right direction and then i i could say yeah maybe it could be repaired right because you're only 50 i know being raised in this in an abusive home like that we're made to believe that we're like 99 and we're the problem that's not how relationships work you can only clean your side of the street you're only responsible for yourself. We can't make anybody be better or not be so abusive or understand. They have to want to do that, right? They have free will. So there's that. Now, um those uh, if you're able to to minimize the amount that you go home. I'm sure you're already doing that, but I would encourage you to do that. And again, to the other, like the advice that I gave before, like the beefing up our coping skills and having someone we can vent to and just limiting the time that we stay. Like for breaks, if there's like volunteer work you can do, or you can do an extra lesson, I don't know, an extra class, like through the summer, I took summer school sometimes so that I could make sure I graduate on time. I had to take two classes, maybe do that. Or if your friend's like, hey, I'm going on this adventure and you can afford to do it, go. Um, Because you know, it's it's not healthy for you to be there. And I know you're like, what about my younger sister's sake? We can't light ourselves on fire to keep someone else warm. Unfortunately, you know, we can be there. We can invite her to come along with us on things if, if they'll allow it. But, you know, again, you're not her parent. It's not your responsibility. I know that's really hard. We can support her and talk to her and do all the things that we can do. But until she gets out of that house you know, if she's not 18, there's nothing we can do about that unless we want to call child protective services or something. Right. And that's like, it is up to you, but that's escalation. It doesn't sound like you're ready to do. And it just seems like too much. Right. So, um, all in all, prepare yourself, make sure you have extra support, extra people to vent to, and as much as you can stay out of that house. You know, um, whether that means like for breaks you're only home for a few days here and there, in and out. You know, we're there for two days and we go somewhere and do something. We're back for a couple days and we go, um, or not at all. No one says you have to go home for school breaks. You know, I know that some people like to and some people have healthy, happy, happy families and want to do that, but in this case, it's not. And to not get dragged into those conversations, I would just change the subject, like have some things that she loves to talk about, something different, makes her feel good or sound good. And let's bring those up. People love to talk about themselves. And if, when she says something about like, oh, you know, I know better, blah, blah, blah. She's going on about like abuse or trauma, pretending that she understands it when she doesn't. You can say, interesting, mom. And then boom, into something else. Interesting. So we acknowledge, not really because it's stupid and she doesn't know what she's talking about, but whatever. Interesting. Interesting. Hey, did you hear so-and-so? That would be right up your alley, Mom. You're so good at that. You know, just change the subject into something else, okay? And hopefully, for your sake, it can be repaired in the future. But again, they have to do their part. It's 50-50, unfortunately. Moving on to next question. Question number seven says, hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Says there are these videos about how you now realize that some of the things in your childhood were associated with a person turning out to be gay in adulthood. Oh, I haven't seen these. Nothing in my childhood or being a teenager points to that. I just recently have come to terms with the fact that I like women, but now I feel like I'm not sure anymore. My question is, am I still gay and into women, even if there's nothing that points to that? I hope this makes sense. Thank you for all that you do. This is the danger of people sharing their own experience. Obviously, it's also incredibly helpful and healing for others, but everyone's experience and situation is going to be different. I encourage you not to judge yourself based on other people's videos. Just because you didn't have certain things in your childhood or your teen years that pointed to you being gay doesn't mean that you can't be gay. This is your life. This is your experience. Only you know who you're attracted to, what you like and don't like, what you're interested in. There's no judgment around that. It doesn't have to look a certain way. You don't have to feel like I have friends in the gay community who will say, I knew I was, you know, gay or bi or whatever. From the moment I was born, I feel like from early ages, I felt X, Y, or Z. And then I have other friends that are like, I had this like, aha moment kind of at this certain time in my life. And I'm like, I guess I'm getting, you know, so do not make someone else's experience or don't take someone else's experience and assume that yours has to be the same. You're not them. They can have theirs and you can have yours. And I just encourage you to allow yourself to, if you feel, if you still feel, you know, like you like women and that's, that's the thing and you've already decided before, go with it and that's okay. Or if you feel like you need to question, you need to take your time, take your time with it. No one says we have to know and decide and come out. Those are all things that are done at your leisure, when you feel ready, when you feel okay with it. And some people never want to come out. And that there's no judgment around any of these kind of choices. They're all choices that you get to make. This is your life. You love who you love. Be with who you want to be with and give yourself an opportunity to just explore it. Okay? But everyone's experience is different. And I'm, I don't want you to think that yours has to look like someone else's. So yes, you can still be gay, even if there's nothing in your childhood to point to it. And you can be, you know, you can be whatever it's, it's up to you. Only, you know, how you feel. Okay. So let's listen to that and shut out all the noise. Final question. Question number eight says, Hey, Katie, you've talked a lot about aging disorders, changing the way they show up over time. Yes, they are chameleons. And I was wondering if trauma can do the same thing. Ooh, it can. For context, my trauma caused panic attacks and extreme distress for years. But recently, those panic attacks have stopped altogether. Now, whenever I begin to feel more memories or sensations coming back, I suddenly can't feel any emotion at all. I tend to sit and stare off into space. And while I know what's happening around me, what has happened in the past. I can only remember the factual events and can't connect to any sensations, emotions, or details. This is very different from what I used to experience or what I'm used to experiencing. And I'm unsure if this is still a trauma response. It is, but we'll talk about that. Is it normal to have the, have the way trauma shows up shift over time? Yes. How does this change how I should move forward with trauma work as I was previously doing exposures? Does this experience mean that I no longer qualify as having trauma? No, no. I don't like to burden other people with my problems, but selfishly, I still want someone to understand what I went through. Of course you do. And because I'm not as obviously struggling, I feel like it's not appropriate to complain about the hard things anymore. Okay, we'll dig into that. I've lost a huge emotional outlet, even if the panic attacks weren't ideal, and now I punish myself for feeling any negative emotion because I don't feel like I have a valid reason to. Oh, any suggestions? Thanks for all you do. Of course. I have a ton of thoughts about this. Now, yes, trauma responses can change all the time, and here's why. As we go through different things, as we're working on different things, different things can be triggered and our body will respond in kind. Meaning. Back when you were probably first starting this process, you've just felt all this distress from all the years kind of overwhelm you. And you felt this extreme emotional response, which can lead to panic attacks and and just extreme distress. Okay. Well, like a a pot letting steam out now, we've kind of let some of that steam off. Now probably we're digging into more deeper, maybe more vulnerable feeling or more shame-filled experiences And instead of panic attacks and extreme distress, we're cutting it off because our defense mechanism, our defense mechanism, wow, that was hard to say, sorry, is coming in and shutting it down because it's like, I don't know how to deal with this. So let your therapist know this is happening. Like, I just want to shut down. I just numbed out. And it could even be dissociation, but whatever it is, it doesn't mean it's not a trauma response. It's just different because it's a different moment in time in your process, and it could even be different things that you're talking about. And as we dive into trauma, we can find it expressing itself in our life in all, all sorts of different ways. I've had patients go from only body sensations to uh, complete dissociation, to panic attacks, to, you know, it shifts, to cutting it off, to, uh, I had one patient, all she feels tingles in her, her fingers, and then she like space out, which dissociation, everybody's a little different. And it's just going to depend on what you're working on in the moment. I mean, I had a patient, whenever she talked about her sexual abuse, she'd want to throw up. So, but other things were different. It just depends. And our body's response is is just that. It's our body's response. And I assume for you, it's too much. And so you don't feel any emotion at all because this defense mechanism is kicked in and it shut you down. And so let your therapist know this is happening because to me, the work would then be finding ways to calm you down to help you feel okay, to regulate, could be a full body shake, could be tracking it back a little bit earlier before the shutoff and maybe noticing how you feel it in your body. So then we can decide what works for you, whether that's like talking with someone, trying to make eye contact and just like talk about something else, like a distraction. Maybe we need a journal. Maybe we need to call a friend. Maybe we, you know, whatever, pet a dog, all sorts of things, distract or cope, uh, whatever works. And there were other uh, questions. Hold on. Yeah. Is it normal to have ways trauma show up shift over time? Yes. Um, Does this change how I should move forward with trauma work? Probably not. Exposures are the best treatment for trauma, but let your therapist know, because I think we might just need to beef up some of our resources and coping skills before we continue back in. Because it's like we pushed you over the top. That's probably why this is happening. The exposures got more intense. We checked out. Now, this does not mean that you don't, you no longer qualify as having trauma. No, this means we're just, again, overwhelmed, dissociating, triggered, whatever you want to call it. Um, You're not burdening anyone. You still have every right to get the help that you need, talk about what you need to talk about. We just have to, this is just a different roadblock, right? The first was like panic attacks and extreme distress. We've managed that. Now we have complete shutdown because we've gone too far, too much without enough resources. So, Again, just let your therapist know and we'll come up with other coping skills to get you through because it's just your body's just reacting a different way because it's still it's having a hard time and that's okay. We'll get there little by little. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Like I said, you could check out my Patreon page, just patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton. It'll be in the description. If you're wanting just some more mental health content, there's tons of live streams on there from the past. Tons of videos that were never live over here where I answered questions. Just tons of interaction. Um, Hop over there and check it out. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. Bye.